Hi, I'm Dan Cottrell, editor of Rugby Coach Weekly. You're about to jump into one of our podcasts. If you want to find out more about this podcast and also all of the great content, drills, activities, games and advice on the website, then go over to www.rugbycoachweekly.net. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I think it would be a mistake to try and follow their pathway or try to have equal pay for men and women at the moment. I think that, that the men's teams need to work out their finances and make sure they can afford the men's salaries before um, also looking at the, the women's game. Of course, my dream would be that um, men and women are paid equally because the sacrifices they're making are, are the same in terms of their, their bodies and their brains. Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Jess Hayden. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. So Jess uh, works for Contested, which you'll tell us a little bit about later on, which is a very exciting app. Um, based around sports and uh, sports news, uh, but she's also worked for the Times and Sunday Times, uh, writing investigative um, pieces around rugby and sport and women's sport. And uh, she has a little bit of connection with Swansea, but we are most interested in the fact that she is launching a book in March about the Red Roses and their journey from one World Cup to another. So, uh, just quickly, what what is the book that we are uh, going to be talking about? So it's called The Red Roses, and it's all about the England women's rugby team. You're right, it launches in, in March. March the 7th is the provisional date that we're hoping it will be published. And it's really an explanation into the, the current team. It's very much about the current squad and, and what went well in the lead-up to the 2021 Rugby World Cup, which was played in 2022. And also what went wrong, you know, that final was heartbreaking for them. They lost in the final seconds of the game. And really, it's kind of almost a debrief in some respects about what went wrong and what could have been better. But it's really forward-looking as well to the 2025 Rugby World Cup, which England will host, and looking about the 1% advantages that they could make, what could they change about their game, really uh, drilling down into the high-performance environment that England have. It's world-leading for women's rugby. So I spoke to everyone from the nutritionist to the kit man to the physiotherapist to the psychologist and everyone in between, every player, every coach, some former players and former coaches too. I've been really lucky that so many people opened their doors to me and, and let me in and, and let me uh, chat to them about women's rugby and they told me their stories and I, I wish it could be a book that covers the, the whole history of women's rugby in England. But of course, that there's there's a book for almost every team that's ever played because there are so many fascinating stories. But in the first two chapters, I do touch on the history of the Red Roses. But it is very much a book that looks at the current squad for sure. So it's, it's quite an exciting time for the Red Roses uh, at the time because they turned professional um, and they were winning a lot and they were becoming um, more, there was more television coverage of it. And it, you could really see the girls game, the girls and women's game growing. Now, of course, uh, it's still got lots of barriers and challenges. And just in terms of uh, when you're writing a book, what were the ones which sort of came out or jumped out at you most, which I suppose we know some of them, but which are still quite shocking, I suppose. 
It's a really good question. And there's actually a whole chapter in the book, and you didn't even know this, so there's no plug here, uh, called Roadblocks to Success, which is looking at what the, the roadblocks on, on the road to success are. So things like, for example, the professionalism in women's rugby is still in its very early days, and there are things that we need to get right. And it also looks at things such as maternity rights. So when we look at professionalism and contracts and, and having people pay to pay professional rugby, we also need to make sure that they have the, the, the full set of rights that normal workers do to make sure that those contracts are really su uh, sufficient for, for the players. The other huge one was concussion and brain injury in, in rugby. So that's one thing that we have to spoken to some experts, spoken to players who've also experienced brain injuries in rugby. Um, and we, so, yeah, that's what that's obviously one of the big ones. It's a big topic in both men's and women's rugby and across many sports as well. But there's there's a growing body of evidence that it might be a, a bigger issue in the women's game than it is in the men's game. So talk about that. Um, but yeah, professionalism, I think, is a really interesting concept. What does it mean? You have professional with a, a big P and a little P, I'd say, in terms of you could be paid to play and that makes you technically professional. But as many rugby unions are starting to learn professionals are scale and you have England at one end of the scale who are getting they're not perfect they're nowhere near perfect but they're getting there they are bringing kind of a rounded view to professionalism to their players and then you have other unions who are near the bottom of the scale who aren't providing enough players to, to live on comfortably and also aren't giving them the rounded approach to professionalism that, that some unions are. So it's definitely a, a scale. And I think that's quite an interesting point in the, the future as we look ahead in women's rugby. I mean, I think that women's rugby is obviously moving ahead in terms of the, the big P professionalism. But even the England players aren't really getting rewards, which are, are when I say living wages, um, let's say the more experienced players at the uh, sort of beyond the ages of 25, they will be looking at much bigger numbers than the, the numbers that they're getting for the moment. And certainly if you're living, say, like in London or in the environments of London, that's not really enough to to get by on and um, it sort of set, set down set down some roots for because you, you want you give up a job for five, six years to play rugby doesn't automatically mean you're going to have a job at the end of it, as as many professional rugby players in both the men's and the women's game and across all sports now. It's definitely a decision that there's there's no rule, is there, for, for whether you should decide to be a professional women's rugby player or not, because there are so many factors to take into consideration. But what I would say is that the RFU have put in new contracts for, for their women's league, which are far better, the pay is better, and that's made that's made a big difference because they are quite comfortable salaries now that the contracted players are on. But that's so, a very so, small I mean, number for, of players. For, from what we know, what sort of numbers are are they talking about? And and just by the way, for everyone who's thinking, oh, that sounds uh, just sounds like she's coming through a strange order. She is in the office at the moment, so uh, she is she's trying to shut up to everybody. So, uh, what sort of numbers are uh, we talking about here? Yeah, I apologise. New things yeah, do tend to be quite lively. Um, <laughs> if you hear any, if you hear any bad language? It's not you. Sorry. It's not you. Uh, it's you. not me. I promise. Um, so the we don't have the specific numbers because the RPA in England have kept those pretty secret. But what we do know is that they're now you're ranging from for the full time contracted players, you're looking at around thirty to upwards of fifty grand oh, for, okay. for these contracts. So they're, they're serious money, mm. and players are also topped up by their clubs 
So nowadays, as a as a top England player, you could be earning substantial money from playing. But again, this is such a small number of players. You're talking 30 to 35 players who are earning a substantial amount in England. We're not talking about across the world. Um, that that it is those places are, are becoming more and more competitive because the gap is. I think the gap will widen as you have players who are full time professional earning a really decent wage. They don't need to be working on other jobs. They don't need to be getting part time income anywhere else. And the players who who don't quite have that. And the difference in the salaries between a club player who doesn't play for their country and a and an international player is huge. Mm. You know, most club players have other jobs and they have to work full time alongside training and, and playing. Yet international players don't don't have that that worry. And that's the, the biggest change that people say when they turn professional. Not having to work, being able to relax, being able to recover after matches is the, the single biggest impact. Now, I sometimes wonder if that's a good thing and a bad thing, not the the, the physical part of it, which is absolutely uh, make, makes a big difference when you you play a game and then you suddenly got to rush back. Uh, I'm not playing from, not from personal experience, but speaking to players around, they have to rush back uh, home, probably traveling quite a long way. Uh, and then they're back into work the next day, whereas an international player will be able to go through all those protocols uh, to, to recover. But I wonder uh, for 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 anybody really if you are doing rugby full time is your brain not being employed usefully enough elsewhere do you think that uh, these people will get find themselves actually struggling with it because let, let's say that you are full time but you're not being selected there is quite that's quite um, a lot of mental anguish in that there's definitely mental anguish if you're not being picked in terms of using your brain power, I think that's interesting. And it's not a conversation I've had with players about whether they feel that they're not getting enough out. You know, maybe it's a fulfillment question. I'm not sure. But lots of them have other things that keep them occupied. They might have studies. A lot of players study. When I was writing the book and I was spending a lot of time in the England camp during the Women's Six Nations last year, there was a table of players who were studying for master's degrees and, and their uh, undergraduate degrees just to keep that that brain ticking and make sure that they have another avenue. We both know that rugby can be a very short career and it can be even shorter in the women's game um, and you often don't retire with much money. So you need to have something after you, you play rugby. I think we're still we're still comfortably in that stage where no player is going to retire at 30 and or 40 and, and live off their their money for the the rest of their lives but not even in the men's game yet alone the women's so yeah so maybe let's, let's, go, let's, go, let's just uh, circle back then so let's say that there's about 30 players who are earning okay and they're doing uh they're doing better than most but in general when uh when people say that uh the the, the women's game should match the men's game financially if that's i mean apart from the fact that uh there's there's one argument which quite you know you know, equity and it'd be fairer is it actually sustainable given that the men's game is struggling to be sustainable at the moment is that just um people just saying oh it should be but the reality is it's never going to be because there just isn't the financial resource i mean what, what's your sense of what what's going on around this 
Well, it's that difference between what's equal and what's equitable, isn't it? And and maybe I, I personally don't think we're at a stage yet where the women's game could be fully professional. We're on a pathway towards that with the Premiership Women's Rugby. But currently, you know, in 2024, we're not at a stage where the league could sustain a fully professional nine or ten teams. It's just, it's just we're just not there. The men's game, of course, is struggling with teams being lost because they're struggling with their money. And I think it would be a mistake to try and follow their pathway or try to have equal pay for men and women at the moment. I think that, that the men's teams need to work out their finances and make sure they can afford the men's salaries before um, also looking at the, the women's game. Of course, my dream would be that um, men and women are paid equally because the sacrifices they're making are, are the same in terms of their, their bodies and their brains. But I think that if we go too soon with professionalism, as I think the men's game did, there will then be the lock-on effects that, that could cause problems to the game further down the line. Now, with, uh, with the very recent announcement of Alliance Tour for women's rugby, and obviously it's caused quite a lot of conversations. Uh, some people are absolutely delighted, other people saying maybe this isn't the right way. Where should women's rugby go in terms of trying to match men's rugby, if that's not too controversial a question? Because I think... Uh, there is a big movement to say it should be exactly the same. It should follow the same models. And there's another movement to say it's it's a separate sport in many ways. The, the laws are the same, but it's separate in many ways. What's, what's your sense of where people are feeling it should go now? Well, the Lions Tour certainly opened up that question, hasn't it? Because people are now saying... Well, why are they going to New Zealand? Why are we having a Lions Tour? Why, why are we not looking at maybe a different option that would work better for the women's game? My argument has always been that the, the Lions is an outdated model. As much as I love the Lions, I went up to Edinburgh as a fan to go and watch them in 2021. Um, I always watch the tours, love them to bits as a fan. But it is quite outdated. And the women's, the, the, the women's team, I don't think, should just blindly follow what the men have done. Because a tour to South Africa would be pointless. A tour to Australia would be okay. It'd be fairly competitive, but not great. New Zealand's the only really com competitive one, one there. Um, I've always argued that the first Lions tour should have been at, should have been at home to bring in that revenue, bring in those that fan base. Because I don't think you're going to get many travelling fans that go to New Zealand to watch the watch the women tour there. But that's kind of going up on a bit of a rant there about the Lions. But it mm. was a really good point you said about the Lions does bring that into question. Should the should the women match the men? I don't think they should. I think we can learn from the mistakes that the men have made and, and form our own path and go a, a better way. And, professionalism and what is that better way? That. What is that better way? I think it's reacting to the current situation that we have and developing constantly. So, for example... Um, the Lions, again, it comes up because it's a really good example of this. We don't have our home unions are not all fully pressure and not equal in any way. So if we have a Lions tour where there's no quota that each country can have this many players at the Lions, then realistically, it's going to be an England team with a few other players. And I'm not saying that England are miles ahead. And I'm, I should also say, I sound like I'm an England fan. I'm really, I'm really not. I'm very unbiased with this. As you say, I have my Swansea, my Swansea connections. Um, it's a, it would be a team of mainly Red Roses and then a fair few others, but I would say maximum kind of six or seven other players if you're going purely on merit. 
that's not going to benefit the rest of the, the world. That's not going to, why have we had the Lions tour that's only allowing a certain number of countries who are already, the, you know, England, New Zealand are already the best of the best. They don't need another tournament. WXV, what's been brilliant about that is it's, it's, it's building the gaps between the other nations. And I say England, New Zealand there rather than the British and Irish Lions in New Zealand, because I do think that that tour will mainly benefit England because it's England who are going to be playing New Zealand in however many Rugby World Cup finals they'll, they'll play against each other in the years to come. I think that, um, therefore, we should look at well, what would benefit the, the global game rather than the top tier. And WXV has been brilliant at that. So that's exactly an example of where the women's game has broken away and done something unique, different to the men, that has actually been much better for the global game. So uh, let's talk about the WXV. And uh, for people who don't know much about it, just give us a, a sort of quick flavour of what it is and what it represents. So it's the new global structure of the, the women's game. So it kind of replaces that awesome international window. It's in three tiers, WXV 1, 2 and 3. And the WXV 1 being the top tier, 2 being the middle, 3 being the bottom tier. And it's essentially giving the international zone a bit more of a, a step up. So the, the plan was, it was uh, WXV 1 was hosted in New Zealand last year. The plan was to get some audiences there. The audiences were pretty terrible because of awful marketing on their on New Zealand rugby side. So let's just go um, back to those audiences thing. I will come back to yeah. X2 and X, WX3 mm-hmm. in a moment. So audiences, is that television audiences or fans through the gate? Or is it both? Fans, well, it's both. But I would say that the, the, the bad marketing was on behalf of New Zealand rugby to not get more fans through the door. So their fans that attended the World Cup, which was only a year before, were not then kind of marketed and get sent emails. Well, you watch that while you come to WXV, which I think was a huge mistake. And I'd also say that the TV audiences weren't great in the UK because of the times that the games were on in New Zealand, um, which is obviously a... Um, it's it's it can't be helped when you have a tournament in the southern hemisphere and and we can we can moan all we want but um the audiences weren't even great in New Zealand uh, in terms of TV audiences either and I think a lot of that was because of the TV details not being shared until the the, the last moment um so it wasn't great but um I th- I I do think that we should write off that tournament because of the bad audiences in in one host nation. Moving on then, so the, the WX2 allowed uh, nations which weren't necessarily Six Nations nations to be to be involved, and that's fantastic uh, in terms of growing growing the game. In terms of growing the game as a whole, how much do you think that young girls who are maybe thinking about rugby or are not necessarily being exposed to rugby will see an international and say, "I want to play rugby"? Is that the thing which tips them over the line? as much as maybe other things uh, that um, that are going on at the moment? Well, that's a, a really good question. I don't have a definite answer about what convinces a, a young girl to become a, a rugby player and, and pursue that. I would say that one of the biggest drivers is the the pathways that are in place and the, the scouting and the, the systems that are in place, especially in... England and Wales to try and push people into the, the right places. So talent development schemes or talent identification schemes, they've been really good at getting us some of the, the top women's players at the moment. Um, 
but I there's a saying in women's rugby and it's, it's it's said everywhere but it seems to be the catchphrase of women's rugby at the moment can't see it can't be it mm. and the players always say it every interview it comes out it's like a bingo card for me have they said <laughs> can't see it can't be it but they're so right it's absolutely true because if you if you can't see women being paid to play rugby if you can't see them in their international kit or whatever then you're not going to know that it's a possible a possibility I mean I, I always look back I, I'm, I'm not that old but I look back at um, my childhood and there was never even women's football on tv yet alone women's rugby or or any other sport really I think the only the only women's sport I ever saw was the uh, Olympics or Wimbledon it's probably it. Um, so I, I I look now at the, the schedule and you can watch the WSL and you can watch the PWR and you can watch all these different sports. And I think that has a big impact on attendance. But I guess as a as a coach, you, you have a much better insight into that than, than me. Well, I, I think that's uh, I'm always interested when uh, so I run a university women's team and uh, I'm always interested when girls start rugby for the first time and this year we had a fantastic story where a girl joined um, about four weeks into the season and uh, we asked her why she joined she says well I'm Portuguese and I watched Portugal men beat Fiji men on Sunday so I thought I better start rugby and uh, she's still playing with us now and she's uh, she's fully involved and she's really enjoying it and that was what got her over the line in terms of being involved now obviously when they turn up the coach and the team have got to be inviting and create an environment and um i think that uh, england rugby is obviously looking to activate as much as possible to grow the game not just as an audience uh, watching but also to um to get players in now i i sometimes wonder and it's, it's very controversial what i'm going to say now is some of the women's games i watch are good and some of them are awful but i don't think we can I, I think there's a danger. Now, now, this is not controversial. There's a danger that we watch the games and say this is much better than the men's game. We should come on. It's a, it's a game of rugby, and you enjoy it if you're invested in it. Is uh, do we get a little bit um, um, too soft in terms of oh, the women's game is much better than the men's game? Is it? Is it? Is it that different? How, how do you think people perceive it? interesting question how do they perceive it I think that women's rugby is still compared to men's a lot and I think there are people out there who compare it negatively and 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 don't give women's rugby the time of day because they're comparing it to the men's game but they're, they're comparing the physicality maybe the skill level and it's not a it's not a kind comparison I don't think mm. and but I do get frustrated myself when we seem to celebrate things that we wouldn't celebrate in the men's game so maybe moments on the pitch that I don't think are particularly exciting but we're shouting about them as, as if they are and I think that's a trap that women's football's fallen down uh, and I see sometimes videos on online of you know moments that are being branded as what's this incredible save or what's this brilliant strike and I think that's that level of skill the players themselves wouldn't be shouting about that and I watched one the other day, this from Tottenham Hotspur women of a, a header that saved a goal. And the comments were awful because people pointing out this will, if, you, if you're saying this is the best of women's football, this is a really bad show of it because that's not anything that would be kind of shouted about in the men's game. And I, so I think there's, there's the possibility that women's rugby can fall into that trap. We don't need to celebrate everything. We should be able to criticize play and, and we should be able to criticize players as well when they're not performing. It's not to say that you know, as the, the media or whatever, we should be 
tagging players in horrible comments online or or being mm. personally rude about them. But I I think that we need to accept that for, if women's rugby is going to grow, that it's going to be critiqued as well. And as players are professional and as they're given more support than they've ever had before, they also then, that that raises the standards and that raises the the pressure on them to, to perform. No one's ever going to have a perfect match and, and no one's ever going to have a match so awful that they get a zero out of 10 on the, the post-match ratings, which I always hate and never write. Um, but we do need to be able to critique them. And I think that as that grows, then so will kind of the understanding that, yeah, it's a growing game. You can't you can't compare it to the men because there's no point. They they've had years, they've had pathways, they were playing from a much younger age, most of them. They had all that support around them. They weren't having to, you know, a boy now, a player now, as a boy, didn't have to go and play in a girls' team for their childhood and, and be put on the bench every week or or get called sexist comments all the time or have to change in a room full of girls. They didn't have those problems that the women have had, you know, with playing in boys' teams, etc. There's, there is no comparison. But as we as the game grows and as we get 10 years down the road or wherever, and the pathways are solidly in place and the pre- professionalism's there, the clubs have got really good academies, blah, blah, blah. But the comparisons will be there. Because mm. and, and, they've had and the I think your point about the uh, the commentary, uh, and I'm not just saying a TV commentary, the general commentary does get a bit hyperbolic um, sometimes. And uh, I was watching the England-Australia Netball International last night and the commentary was in a different different standard because they didn't have to uh, overhype good play. If there was good play, it was hyped. But if there was bad play or things were going wrong, then it was it was it was different. There was there was much more love and respect between the commentary teams and the teams. And so you felt that, and that was really positive. But it didn't have to be um, all about oh wow, you know, we wouldn't. This is just amazing. And I, I feel that. That's sometimes disappointing when I listen to some of the commentary. I think there's some fantastic commentators, by the way, on, in the women's game, but they some of them need to dial down their uh, joy at uh, some of the play and maybe just help people technically understand what's going on uh, around that. So anyway, I'm just going to go back away from a, a point which is probably digging myself into a, into a hole there. Um so let's let's move on to the, the Red Roses. Obviously, playing in the six in the Six Nations, you were with them. It must have been really hard because really they know that there's one game and one game only in the Six Nations which matters, and that's against France. Now, I'm not saying that uh, the other the other um, competing nations aren't going to put up a good show, but the Red Roses have moved on so much in the last uh, five six years. Uh, that isn't that hard? Isn't that isn't that difficult? And that's absolutely nothing against Wales, uh, Ireland, Scotland, uh, Italy, because they've got challenges which we've talked about in terms of professionalism. Yeah, England and France are definitely pulling away. We've had this issue for a, a few years now, but the the women's sensations last year was one of the was the most competitive in in recent history and very exciting and it, I say recent history I'd say actually since 2019 when when England turned professional I think it's been the most it was the most competitive since then the teams are growing when you have Wales on central contract you have players there who were full-time professionals that that's that, that's growing as well I think that's mm. a Wales are a team that could really start competing this year and in, in future years I think they're not far off 
um, beating one of England or France. I, th I think we could see that in the next couple of years. And I kind of like to look at the Six Nations as a test of how close those nations are getting to England and France. But like in the men's game, some of my favourite matchups are the teams that you know, they might not, it might they don't, might not be competing for the the top spot, but. I always say that Scotland Wales is my favourite match in the men's Six Nations every mm. year because it's always a there's always like a moment of magic. You never know which way it's going to go. The league tends to switch places quite a few times during the match, and I always just love it. And much prefer to England Wales because um, that, that it's just it's a more kind of exciting match I find. So yes, England and France are, are pulling away, but they have been for years. But I think there are. No, I, I, I suppose the question is, uh, and I would absolutely agree with you. I think uh, watching some of the Italy, Wales, and Italy, Scotland last year was absolutely brilliant. Really, really enjoyable rugby. But in terms of uh, these girls in the camp and they are preparing, and I'm not saying that they're taking it easy when they come up against uh, the other four, uh, three, sorry, three, four. Um, they are, uh, but the, the key one must be the focus, must be France. Yes, I think you're right. I think especially last year with England France being the final match of the of the final match for England in the the six, six nations, it was they knew that they were playing for the top spot, and that that's always important, right? Um, so I definitely in, the players would always say to you that they take every game as it comes, and I didn't quite believe that until I was in the camp and, and was with them for the the duration over the course of um you know a couple of days a week seeing how they prepared for, for each match and they they really do they 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 train and work as hard to face Italy or any other nation as they do against France but they know what what's what's on the table there's there's no hiding from that they also know what um they know what's on the table and they also know that they're going to be playing normally in front of what the biggest crowd so it is it is a, a bigger atmosphere, I think, but I think you'd be surprised at how much the players just treat it like another game. All right, and so uh, just from your uh, your time in the camp, um, and I'm thinking about the coaches uh, now. Obviously, Liam uh, Middleton uh, did a fantastic job. He was obviously disappointed he didn't make it, and um, this is not this is not against uh, John Mitchell, but. In terms of moving the game forward, was this not a chance to bring in a women's coach? Or are we again having to think differently about how coaches are appointed? Do you mean women's coaches in somebody who's played women's rugby before? Yeah, so I'm thinking coaches? I'm thinking the fact that um uh Liam uh steps down, uh so there's a vacancy. Was this not an opportunity to bring in a women's uh women's coach? Do you not think that uh uh, I mean, there are some very good coaches involved there uh, now, uh, uh, women in, in post, but uh, not the head coach. Yeah, I think that there were some there were some candidates that I'd have put forward in Giselle Mayfair, Joe Yap, um, Susie Appleby. Don't know if they applied or if, if, if they did apply, how far they got in the application process, but definitely some names I'd have put forward. I think the, the biggest surprise is they chose someone who has no history in the women's game hasn't coached them before because it is so different and um I talk about it in the book and it's a bit it's a bit that I'm sure you'd actually really like that about why it's so different coaching women than men and I'm sure you'd be well I'm mean, gonna I'm stop you there and you're gonna have to give me some uh reasons and things that you you came out 
because I think a lot of this is a, this is, by the way, a very interesting area because some will say there should be no difference. But plenty of the people I speak to, I had a, a very interesting podcast with uh, Catherine Spencer about it. And she said, yeah, it is different. So what, what did you what did you notice? It's so different. And every coach I spoke to, I don't even know how many coaches, but many, many coaches. So all the all the coaches that are currently with the England team and then quite a few past coaches as well. And one of the questions I asked every single one of them is what's different about coaching women than men? And at first, the first couple of people that answered, I thought, this is just sexist. And then when everyone answered it, women, are, you know, men and women, because I spoke to players as well, who were coaches and um they all said the same is that with with men you tell them to do something and, and they'll do it with women you tell them to do something and they ask why and it's the explaining factor that's more important I can see your little your smirk there um because it's true and I think it um I did get a bit frustrated when people kept saying it and because everyone was saying the same thing without having kind of spoken about it between themselves um and the so needing to know why being a bit more um explaining things in terms of selection giving feedback better so one thing that Southern Middleton said that I thought was interesting was that he learned in the early days he, he spoke to one of the psychologists who was working with the England team at the time and said um the players don't they, they seem to not be taking my praise because they think I think they're in bad form but I haven't said that and she said well well yeah what do you do when a player is playing well and they've had a good match and he said well nothing he said well what do you do when they've had a bad match well I'll talk to them she said well if players had a good match they don't know that you think that they have no way of knowing that you think that so you have to go out of your way to say it and that one I didn't know if that was specifically a women a difference but was certainly something that he learned in post and had, had has kind of passed on to to the coaching staff to make sure that that that's a thing that you are kind of giving the positive feedback with them and the negative um so yeah, that's it really in terms of the mannerisms. There were some funny examples. Gary Street, the former England um, coach who won the 2014 World Cup with England, he told me about this hilarious example of um, uh, S&C coach coming into the, the team, doing a training session and saying, if at any point I see you with your hands on your heads, hands on your hips or looking tired, we start the whole session again. And they'd gone an hour and a half into the session and all of a sudden he blows his whistle and says, right, we're starting again because I can see hands on heads. And the players were furious. They went into Gary Street's office later that day and said, he's taken the mick. None of us had our hands on our heads. It's awful. He was lying. We we don't want to be lied to. We do the fitness again. but And they did do it again. But we won't take being lied to. It was Honestly, it was like he had a mutiny on his hands. It was awful. Yeah, so Gary looked at the, the tape and realised that they didn't have their hands on their heads. And neither side was lying. It was just that they were fixing their ponytails. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was a, a significant difference. Um, and when I asked, some of them said, well, you can't go in the changing rooms. Uh, that was another one that I got quite a lot. Um, but yeah, there's there's quite a lot of difference. And I have to say, I definitely had to to re to learn and, and realise that a lot of the time it was, it was genuine differences and and, not, and and try not to to think that it was sexist. These are these are the difficulties, and um, but the thing is, within the difficulties, there's great joy and there's great uh, celebration within the game. Now, obviously, when when the game, the the World Cup was lost, it it was a, it was terrible in many ways. But it there must have been people thinking about actually, we've done achieved a hell of a lot. 
how how do they do that given the fact that they've built to that point because there is a lot of joy there's such a lot to celebrate in what's happened in the last four or five years in in english rugby despite the fact they didn't quite get over the line in the world club so i think um the players would have said to me actually they couldn't celebrate at all if they felt like the biggest losers in the world and um, because there was no way to to celebrate when you've just lost on the biggest stage from the tiniest of margins as well from one line out whether you think that's where the game was lost or, or not that 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 was such a pivotal moment in that match what they did was they they got together that evening after the match you know they had their time on the pitch they to, to to kind of ruminate in that and then they they went into the changing rooms the the coaching staff came in they had a bit of a mini debrief there they had some some drinks but not much everyone was really tired they went to bed on the flight home the next day, Emily Scout was the only one who could bring herself to watch the match. She she had to. Every player reacts differently, but um, Scouts had to sit and watch it because she wouldn't be able to get it out of her head until she'd seen it for herself. Because she always says it, it looks different to how it is on the pitch. So she did that. Some players haven't watched it since. So one thing that England decided to do was never have a debrief session where they went through the final because every player was playing it over in their head a million times. It wouldn't achieve anything. They decided not to. And that's quite a controversial take, I thought, because I think a lot of coaches would have chosen to to go through it, but um, Simon and his staff chose not to. And then what they they then had a, a camp in the February, I believe. So the final was early in November. I think the camp was in February, just before the, the women's station started, or the camp started at least. And in that session, Simon kind of walked them around Twickenham Stadium, showed them kind of this is where the 2025 World Cup will be being played. This is where the final will be. All eyes on that. That's where you should be. And then he said, but I won't be there. He told them then he was he was going to be leaving. Um, so I think that's, I don't think there was much joy at all, to be honest. Players really struggled with it. And I spoke to Helen Davis, who was the psychologist with England at the time. And... I said to her, you know, when players talk to me about it, they they describe it as a trauma. They they describe that final as a traumatic event. And Helen said she's always really aware that calling losing a match a traumatic event is always seems a bit dramatic. And and for anyone who's had a, a, a traumatic event in their life, it might sound a bit silly to call a rugby match a traumatic event. But the players are are, are really almost in a state of grief, I would say, for for, for weeks, for months. It, it, they really struggle with even months and months after the, the game, every player kind of sat down, I'd warn them, I'd say, oh, you know, in this chat next week, I'm going to talk about the World Cup. And as we sit down, I'd say, are you okay to talk about the World Cup? Nearly every single one cried talking about it because of the this, the the crowds that they had, the pressure that they felt, the, the, everything that was on the line for them. You know, the, the professional team, they were the, they were the earliest team to go pretty professional the first fully professional women's team and, and they'd lost the, the World Cup um the World Cup final two times in a row then. It was really tough for them. Um they are kind of rebuilding now. I think the, the women's six nations last year was a huge turning point for them. Uh because they had that win on such a big stage, sell out uh, not sell out, but record um Twickenham crowd, etc. But no, I wouldn't say there was any joy. Um, they even had a, sorry, I should say, when they landed back in the UK after the World Cup, they had a party at, in Twickenham at the Cabbage Patch, I believe. Oh, no, it was at a pub. And then the second day, it turned into a two-day event. The second day was the Cabbage Patch. Not that that's relevant. And they um, they 
had you know they were drinking then and they were partying and kind of enjoyed it but lots of them just went home after a couple of hours because they just weren't in the mood um some of them their their, their mum stayed out when they went home and and that was kind of how it was I think there's a lot to be said for the other teams who didn't really think they were going to win but got further than they thought they might like Wales for example they kind of enjoyed the festivities a bit more I'd say I think it's really tough um if you play sport uh, and you rock up on a Saturday morning to play a game of golf and it doesn't go quite well, it's hardly traumatic. But, and you then say, well, why is it traumatic for them? But the thing is that they'd lived and breathed it. They'd built themselves up. They'd worked really hard. And when you say work really hard, it means you'd put your body through an incredible amount of stress and anxiety to get yourself fit enough. I mean, those gym sessions were brutal. I mean, we just heard it about uh, Gary Street telling a story about the hair. Uh, and so no wonder they're, they're feeling this. And of course, they've had had all the, all the pressure. OK, well, we're going to end on a bit of joy. So you are um, working with Contested. So just tell us a little bit about what that is. Yeah, so... As you, as you know, I was at the Times of the Sunday Times as a rugby journalist, sub-editor, and also the lead reporter, especially at the end of my time there, I was lead reporter in the Sportswomen of the Year Awards and really leading on that. Women's sport, women's rugby has always been the area that, that I love. So back last March, Contested got in touch with me and said that we're launching this, this app and it's going to be, we're hoping it'll be the, the one-stop place for sports fans where you can talk about sport you can um, predict on sport without there being any gambling element you can kind of predict I think this is going to happen and you don't have to put any cash to that you can just put your your dignity on the line with it whether you think um Scotland are going to win the women's six nations or, or what you can put it there and if you're right you win more points and you get further up the leaderboard so it's kind of like the gamification of sport fantasy sport element alongside a very strong editorial so I've joined as editor and as I say, I worked with them since March. So I had a long time getting to know them and their vision. And this is a, a group of people who love women's sport, who um, put their money where their mouths are as well by sponsoring Eating Trail Finders Women this season. Um, and also, you know, buying really like hospitality tickets for fans to um, Women's Six Nations matches last, last year as well. And as editor, what I'm hoping to do is bring really strong, exclusive news lines strong opinion pieces controversial takes but never offensive um to the forefront of sporting news and including all sport in that we we're covering the sports that the mainstream media don't i really hate the term mainstream media because i've just left it and it always always feels like it's a, a pointed insult but um things like darts netball um basketball that actually have huge audiences in the uk nfl as well huge audience in the uk but then they don't have a home anywhere they're not really served by any other media so as editor i'm trying to bring bring those sports in as well as covering football rugby cricket tennis really well um so yeah we're building the app at the moment um we've got grace moore the ireland and saracens player on staff as one of our um she's a content and data intern with us she's fantastic she's been writing some great pieces um, yes, yeah, so we're just building at the moment and and yeah, it's a really nice and lovely, lovely app. It's very, it's a positive atmosphere. We say that you can talk about things that are contestable, but we wouldn't, we'd never want abuse on the platform. So it's quite, um, well, you know, we haven't had that problem yet, but we, we're there for the true sports fan. 
we're the place for a true sports fan. If you want to go and shout your abuse or be nasty, then you've got to better for that, haven't you? We're the place for the the, the people who who just love sports. So yeah, really excited. I'm only it's my I'm two weeks in, but I've known them for ages. Love it here, and it's it's definitely going to be. Um, I, I hope the the next the next big sports app. Brilliant, brilliant. So, uh, uh, how'd you get the app? Just put contested into Google. Or, yeah, uh, Apple, on the App Apple Store. Store. The App Store, and okay. we're we're on um, we're on Twitter, Instagram, all the rest of it as well. If you just search contested, um, it should be there. Right, brilliant. Well, Jess, thank you very much for that, and thank you for um, sort of um, tackling some quite um, random questions fired at you. They weren't necessarily the ones that we uh, we I sent to you in the first place, but we went to some very interesting places. So, really looking forward to the book coming out in March, March the seventh. We hope it's the publication date. And uh, obviously the book will be uh, fascinating just for the journey, but also it sounds like a very moving, moving account. You've been listening to a Rugby Coach Weekly podcast. I'm Dan Cottrell. If you want to find out more about the podcast and Rugby Coach Weekly, pop over to rugbycoachweekly.net and uh, you can find all the other podcasts on there. And of course, the podcasts are all available at your favourite podcast place. Uh, Jess, thanks very much for your time again. Thanks, Dad. It was great to chat to you. And uh, we all look forward to hearing and speaking to you all very soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.